0: Be back and live and together in the building, and those of you, of you who are here, welcome to the church. Those of you who are joining us from your sofa or your kitchen table or your office desk, you also are the church, and as the church, we are involved in the hope business, and for the past eleven weeks, we have been talking about what that means and this Sunday is the final message in that series. Now, it doesn't pretend to be the last word on hope, but it's the last opportunity we're going to have to be able to address it head on. And then we leave it with you with the hope that everything that has been stirred up and cultivated in you will continue to grow and spill over out of you. This morning, I want to talk with you, I think, in a very personal way about the hope of the gospel And I want to ask you to make a decision, to take a stand. For some of you, you did that long ago. Uh, For some of you, you're not sure whether it ever really happened. For some of you, this is going to be really fresh. So as a starting point for all of us, I'm going to ask you to reflect on this question. If somebody were to ask you, what is it that you're hoping for? What would you say? What is the big thing that you're hoping for in your life? Maybe it's something in your work, a promotion or a project or something. Maybe it's some aspect of your relationship life, a a relationship that is broken or a relationship that you don't have but you're pining for. Maybe it's something around your health or the health of a loved one. Uh, We're all hopers, aren't we? It started when we were little. We hope for parents that loved us and, and friends who would care about us. We, we hope that we would make the team, that we wouldn't get picked last. We, we hope that we'd do well in school, we'd make good grades. We hope that when we got out of school, we'd emerge without too many debts and find a good job. Maybe we hope to get into a house. Around here, that's, that's a pretty big hope and not an easily achieved one. Then maybe we hope we'll get married and we can move a spouse into the house. And then a lot of times people go on and they'll hope for kids. You've got to get some kids into the house with the spouse. And then you get the kids into the house with the spouse. And then you start to hope for the day that the kids will move out of the house. And that can be a hope as well. You hope to get a job. And you get the job. And eventually you begin to hope that you can retire from the job. And then what is it that you hope for? It's a strange thing about us, isn't it, that we outgrow lots of things, but we never really outgrow hope. You might remember a few weeks ago, if you were with us, that we talked about this study from the Center for Disease Control, who noted that recently we've gone through a three-year period where the average life expectancy of adults in North America has actually gone down. And that hasn't happened in more than a century. And it hasn't gone down because of heart disease, and it's not because of cancer. Those death rates are all down. The causes of death that are soaring are drug abuse, the opioid epidemic, alcohol-related deaths, and suicide. Together, these are being called deaths of despair. It was two economists from Princeton that coined that phrase, deaths of despair, and and it's kind of caught on, maybe quite rightly. In the last 20 years, fatalities due to those causes have more than tripled. We and our children, we are literally dying of hopelessness, deaths of despair. And we know that part of the consequence of this is that in Western society, both rates of marriage and the birth rates are declining sharply in spite of increases in in technology and the household income level and education and standard of living. Sociologists say that that happens when there's a lack of hope. Who wants to bring kids into the world if you don't have much hope for the world they're coming into? Johns Hopkins says in a study of depression that that anxiety is up across all age groups, but mostly between kids ages 12 to 17. Those 12-year-olds who face cyberbullying on Facebook and, and social media-induced depression, we didn't even have those things a generation ago, and now we don't know what to do about them. And then there's another strange thing happening. Really, we we're dealing with disappointment on two fronts. First, we hope for something and we don't get it. But then sometimes we hope for things and we get them and when we get them, we realize, well, it's not all that. It wasn't what we thought. Tim Keller quoted a New York columnist, someone who'd known a lot of celebrities before their fame, and they listed a whole bunch of them, Sylvester Stallone, Julia Roberts, on on their way, knew them when they were still obscure, and here's what she wrote. This is the quote. One of the funny things was that after they got famous, if anything, they were more unhappy, more angry, meaner than they were before. Because the giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make every day okay and provide them with fulfillment and happiness, it hadn't happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. That's a great line, isn't it? They were still them. I mean, that's their problem the disillusionment turned out to, to produce in them just insufferable indifference and sometimes howling anger. It makes me wonder sometimes if if we really thought that God wanted to play kind of a rotten practical joke on people, maybe what he does is grants them their selfish desires and then watches those things play havoc in their lives. I mean, let's face it, We're hard to satisfy, aren't we? But this actually says something quite profound. I believe it says something about our identity, about who we are as human beings. It says something about human nature. Great thinker, a profound writer, a Danish Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard put it like this. If there were nothing eternal in the heart of man... They would not despair. If there were nothing eternal going on in here, you wouldn't despair. In other words, if we're just a bunch of instincts, a lot of people are convinced that's all we are, life wouldn't be the kind of problem it is for us. It would just be the search for survival and pleasure. But we're not just appetites. We're, We're not just instincts. There is this deeper kind of longing. One writer said it like this a long time ago. He said, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. It's in you. It's in you and you know it. That's why capitalism and workaholism and money and success and pleasure, it can never quite fill that thing that's gnawing away at our souls. There's a deeper question. Let's ask it like this. What is your fallback hope? And what is your fallback position in life? When you don't get the thing that you're really hoping for, when you realize that you're never going to get it, when you do get it and realize it wasn't worth hoping for in the first place, what do you put your hope in then? I mean, hope in which is what we're really going to talk about today. What do you put your hope in? Which is something a whole lot different and a whole lot deeper than hope for. Hope in, hope for. There's a a famous metaphor. It's at the very top of your notes, if you have your notes in front of you. But, But here it is also on the screen. It says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. It's a beautiful metaphor. I'm not even sure exactly what it means. I just know it, it feels right to read it. Biblical writers, when they talk about hope, though, they talk about it just a little bit differently. For them, hope is an anchor. Hope anchors the soul. Hope holds you firm in the midst of a storm. Hope keeps you going when you've lost the things that you were hoping for. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Hope keeps you going when you've lost the things you were hoping for. The Apostle Paul, he actually had almost nothing to say about hoping for things, especially things the world is preoccupied with. He rarely wrote about enjoying circumstances. And because of the circumstances of those who lived in the early days of the church, they rarely wrote to people who were enjoying good circumstances in life at all. And they pretty much never write predicting predicting the imminent arrival of better circumstances. But they have a whole lot to say about what the human race should put their hope in. One of the most influential sets of words ever written in the human language about hope you find in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Those are the words that that Christie read for us. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them up or turn them on or however you access God's word. 1 Corinthians 15. And join me here as Paul starts with a summary of the gospel, what is the good news that you can put your hope in? Well, here it is. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news I preached to you. That news which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By that gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For that which I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. And Paul here is summarizing the good news. He says, you've taken your stand on it. Here is the solid ground. We're going to come back to that image again, to that language. And today we're going to invite you to take a stand. But what I wanted to do first was was to give you the opportunity to test the ground that you're going to stand on. And I want to give you two big reasons why taking your stand or putting your hope in this good news is not just eminently practical and reasonable, but is also eternally profitable. So here's the first reason. Our hope is historic. Or maybe it's said in a better way, the good news is historical, meaning it, it really happened. I mean, isn't it important if you're going to step on ground to make sure that it's real ground, that it's solid ground, that this isn't just fictitious or imaginary, imaginary or metaphorical? There really was a man named Jesus. He lived a life like nobody ever had. He taught like nobody would ever taught. He, he, he taught in a way that people couldn't forget. They couldn't resist him. They didn't always understand him. But they just, they couldn't get him out of their minds. He never wrote a book. But more books have been written about him than anybody else who ever lived. He never posed for a painting, and yet somehow his face is the most recognizable face in the world. Nobody's even a close second. He died on a cross as a failure and a reject. And yet we know he chose to die. He embraced that death, and, and nobody quite understood why at the time. And when he died in a moment on that day, his movement was utterly and completely finished. Until three days later, it wasn't. Something happened. Something happened that resurrected the movement And his followers insisted that what resurrected the movement was the resurrection of Jesus, of the Messiah, and the cross, which up until that time had been, by Rome's purpose, just a symbol of failure and humiliation and execution, becomes instead the world's greatest symbol of hope. And now it adorns more graves with the hope of resurrection than any other symbol in the world. And so here's how Paul describes this in a passage that's absolutely unique in ancient literature. Paul says that Jesus, we're reading on in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4, that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, all at the same time, most of whom... Are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Historians generally agree that Paul wrote those words about 20 years after the death of Jesus, so within the span of a generation or less than a generation. And Paul here deliberately lists names. There's Cephas, Simon Peter. who saw Jesus after the resurrection. All the disciples did, 500 men and women, some of them dead, but most of them still alive. And the point he's making is really clear. Paul's saying, don't take my word for it. If you don't believe me, you can ask them. They're all still around. In other words, whatever you may think about the resurrection, it wasn't intended by Paul or by any of the folks who were involved in the creation of the story of Jesus that God inspired and is recorded in the Bible. None of them understood it as a metaphor or a symbol. It wasn't poetical, it was historical. It happened. It's the only explanation that makes sense for how the the church gets started after a Messiah gets crucified. And so the resurrection means that you're putting your hope on solid ground. Here's how Paul expressed it. He said, this is verses 3 and 4 again, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why does he use that little phrase in there? He uses it twice according to the scriptures. He's saying that we are part of a great story. A grand story. That there is such a thing as history. A grand narrative that spans the course of the human race that your story embedded in it means something. And when he says that Jesus was resurrected on the third day, that's the point when eyebrows go up. That's an important part of the story. Because the people of Jesus' day, they loved third-day stories. And they recognized them instantly. Throughout the Old Testament, God was understood to be a God of deliverance, a God of salvation, a God who cares, and a God who acts. And most often in the stories, God would deliver, save, rescue, and heal on the third day. That was the pregnant day. Trouble comes, trouble lasts, and then on the third day, salvation comes. Here's a few examples if, if you're interested in looking them up. In Joshua 2. The Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide out. They were in in peril. They were in fear for their lives. But they were also told they would be rescued. When? On the third day. In the book of Esther, Queen Esther hears her people. They're going to be killed. This genocidal maniac. She fasts and she prays and she seeks an audience for the king who receives her and hears her hears her and the plight of her people, and there is deliverance, and all of it happens on the third day. Abraham, torn in anguish, about to lose his son Isaac, there in worship on the mountaintop, when he sees the sacrifice that will spare his son on the third day. Over and over and over again, God is a God of deliverance, a God of salvation, and it happens on the third day. Jesus says he's going to be crucified, and then he says, I'm going to be resurrected, and when is it going to happen? On the third day. He goes on to say, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, Jonah is another three-day story, God rescues just as Jonah was, in the, was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. It's Jesus' way of saying that, that this third day, this resurrection day, this would be the hinge point. This would be the hinge on which history would turn. This is the hope of the universe. This is solid ground. Now, you may not believe that. You may not even fully understand that. You might just be investigating all of this. But it's kind of interesting, just anecdotally, to remember that that we have, for centuries since that third day, divided up human history into what happened B.C., before Christ, and what happened A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The resurrection, the solid ground, is literally the hinge point of our history. It leads to the other reason that I would love to put before you about why to place your hope on this kind of solid ground. See, the problem, the problem with the, the human race, is the problem of celebrity noted by that columnist, is that we're still us. They're still them. Even when we get what we're hoping for, we're still us. But on the third day, Jesus died on a cross for our sins according to the scripture, Paul says, and this is where it gets really personal. Here's what Paul writes. This was personal for him. This gets to the heart of our hope, and our hope is in grace. Our hope is in grace. Again, in your Bible, so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, this is personal for him. Last of all, Jesus appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of all the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God. I am what I am. Can you say that? Let me just pause and say that where you are. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. And this is a poignant moment in Paul's life. Now he uses a strange little phrase in there. It's a a single word translated, well, in in the version that we just looked at on screen, translated as abnormally born. It's an odd little word. It's the Greek word "ectroma It's only used this one time in the Bible. It's a word, kind of a technical word, that they used in the ancient world for an aborted fetus. Abortion was a common practice in the ancient Roman world until the church came along. And remembered Jesus who loved children and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be involved in that anymore. You know how we sometimes use nicknames to mock people and taunt them? We use images. Paul talks elsewhere about how people would mock him. Saying his physical presence was weak and contemptible. They'd say his letters were impressive, but not him in person. He wrote to the church in Galatia once and he said that in spite of illness or deformity, they didn't treat him with contempt or scorn. In fact, the name that he takes, the Greek name, Paul, Paul actually means a little one, small, undersized. I and mean, possibly he suffered from something like dwarfism. We don't know, but he uses this word, ectroma, which was a word of contempt. To say, an ectroma like me, an abortion like me, a messed up, goofed up, unimpressive, sinful, guilty, separated from God who did horrible things, killed Jesus, friends, person like me. Jesus died for me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's, that's grace. I mean, whoever you are, Whatever you've done, that's the truth about grace. That God offers forgiveness as a gift of grace. He offers salvation as a gift of grace. He offers eternal life with God as a gift of grace. Those words in your Bible, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was raised on the third day. Friends, that's the gospel. That's our hope. And now we come to the great crossroads, that point to which everybody comes. And the question is how do you respond? How do you respond to the gospel? I'm not asking today what are the circumstances you're hoping for in your life. A lot of people just live from one moment to the next. And their only hope in moving from one to the next is somehow the circumstances will be better. I'm not asking what you're hoping for. I'm asking what you are hoping in. You can live, if you want, for your achievements and your accomplishments and security and possessions and job and money and all of that. You can do that. Just remember that that we get all amped up about that stuff, but eventually, eventually it just goes in the trash bin, doesn't it? Even the things that we think could possibly never wind up there. The mansion that you pine for. One day it goes in the bin. The humble little automobile that you read about and and dream about and long for. One day winds up in a pile of rust. Rust. You are on the waiting list. From the day it was released, you're waiting still. But when it finally arrives, the PS5 will eventually be replaced by the, I don't know, PS17. And out it goes. Even money. Even money. Eventually, it gets used up. Wasted. Thrown away. I'm just going to leave that here for a little while because there's, there's people in the room. I, I want to see what they do with that. You know, it's, it's not that money is bad. It's just that it, it doesn't last. That's the way it is. Paul has this fascinating statement he makes to his young friend Timothy. This is First Timothy six seventeen. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. I hmm, wonder who those are. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Really? I mean, that stuff isn't certain? Uh Uh-huh. Command them not to put their hope in those things, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Hope in. I mean, you can live for all the stuff that's temporal. You can live for everything that's going to wind up in here. Or you can put your hope in God and live for the things that cannot be lost. You become a follower of Jesus. You experience the grace that so overwhelmed people like Paul. You experience the the refreshing waves of forgiveness washing over the guilt and resentment of your life. And you enjoy your hope in God. Paul's description of that decision It's there in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. the The idea is that just as you would with your body, that you are standing on a strong foundation. It's the same with your eternal existence, with your inner being, with your soul. I have to take my stand. I have to stand on something. That's just the way we are. God has placed eternity in the hearts of human beings. What have you taken your stand for? We all kind of understand this. I've done lots of weddings. Pastor Sheldon, you've done lots of weddings. I've never done a wedding where the groom said, yeah, I'll marry her, but I'd like to be seated because I don't want anybody to see me do it. Right? No, we stand. That's kind of the point. When you make a vow, when you pledge your faith, you take a stand. This changes a life forever. We want to invite you to do that today. This is kind of your moment. I want to invite those of you who have never done it before to take a stand today. And you know that God is prompting you right now. You've been searching this out and testing it out for a long time. This is your moment. For some of you, it feels like a long time ago, and in the intervening years, everything went to a mess. It all has felt so hollow and shallow. Maybe, maybe you need to take your stand again. This is your moment. Now, I'm going to say a prayer for you, and I'd like to invite you, if you've never committed your life to Jesus clearly before, if you've never received the gospel, if you've never put your hope in God, this is why we're here as a Church. To enable people to do this, I'm going to invite you to stand up wherever you are. People around you aren't going to think you're crazy. Stand up as an expression of your commitment. To say with your body, God, I'm taking my stand with you. And from now on, you are my hope. I hope in you. This is this is your defining moment. Say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. It's not going to be about the house, about the car, about the money It's about you. As you're contemplating that decision, as you're finding the courage to stand, I invite Rochelle and Edmund to to lead us in in a time of worship, and then we're going to pray together. So let's do that now. We invite all of you, wherever you are right now, bow your heads and close your eyes. This is a moment between each person and God. For some of you, this is your moment. If you've never clearly committed your life to Christ, if you've never received the gift, the grace of the gospel, and you want to do that today, you want to say really clearly, God, I'm I'm done. I'm done with living for myself, with depending on myself, and I'm trusting in you. I'm taking my stand. I'm putting my hope in you. If that's you, I want to invite you, if you're not already standing, to do so now, to declare it with your body, to say with your body the intent of your heart, right now you stand up as a way of telling God I belong to you I want to know for sure I want to commit my life to Christ I want to put my hope in the gospel and so that we can celebrate with you let me invite you just to place this hashtag in the chat of the YouTube feed you can do it right now hashtag I am taking my stand I am taking my stand God sees you. God sees and God knows. There's no more important decision in the world than the determination that says, God, I'm going to follow you. Jesus, I am yours and you are mine. So if you're standing and that's your intent, let me invite you to pray this with me. God, I confess my sin I confess my need for you. And this day, God, I stand before you. I'm asking you to forgive me, to give me a fresh start, to make me your child. And I declare my decision to make Jesus my friend, my master, my guide, my forgiver, from this day forward throughout my life on earth and then with you forever. And as, as with all the strength I can muster and with all your strength in me, I take my stand. And then God, we want to pray to and give you thanks for, for all those who are gathered together now. I thank you for those who have made a decision that they're going to follow and i pray that you would pour out great blessing into their lives. I pray God that you would lead them to the right people, to the right resources. That they could whisper into their into your into their ears the the love and the delight that you have in them. And that for the rest of their lives anytime something happens that makes them feel unsettled or uncertain or doubtful or, or afraid, that they would remember this moment where they've taken their stand. God bless them. We can all pray this together and we can all celebrate in Jesus' name.